Hi, I'm Jordan Mentor, and you're listening to the Brooklyn to Beijing podcast. Every episode elevates a new conversation around China and its ever-changing relationship with the Black diaspora. Welcome. Welcome to this episode of the Brooklyn to Beijing podcast. This week, we'll be tackling a topic that just a few weeks ago seemed to be the talk of every journalist, analyst, national security, and international affairs experts. Uh, Twitter feed, uh, everywhere on social media, you you saw this being talked about, and especially on Twitter, it seemed like everyone had their own special hot take. And this topic is Afghanistan and the geopolitical dynamics within that region uh, after America and NATO's withdrawal, and particularly the role that China's playing in all of this today. Jason Lee, my guest today, is a researcher at the Stimson Center, and, our, and today he's going to help us dive into this mucky situation. But my hope is, in a really thoughtful and relatable way, which is always how I aim for my conversations to be. I'll let Jason take the reins and give you guys, you know, a little spiel on who he is in a bit. But I did want to introduce his work, which we talked a bit about this episode, and that is the their China's role in conflict mediation project. And what this does, it essentially examines their role as a mediator in various arenas of conflict around the world, and in this case, Afghanistan. So I wanted to make today a great episode for those of you who are new to this issue and not have it just be another trending topic, you know, surface level conversation or just another, you know, political hot take on another national security or international affairs matter happening across the world. So on that, let's get started with our guest, Jason. Hey, Jason, how are you, man? Hey Jordan, I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on the pod. Pretty good. Pretty good. I wanted to, I guess, get started with you introducing yourself to our audience and just giving us some background on you. You know, I think it's only fair that my guests have the opportunity to 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 tell who they are and give the best introduction of themselves and and why they came on today to to talk about you know their respective projects. Absolutely. Well, so my name is Jason Lee. I'm a research associate with the Stimson Center, based in Washington D.C., um, and we're a security think tank that essentially looks primarily at Asia and the different、um, great power politics that are going on over there. And within the program that I work for, a main part of the China program is、um, looking at how China's mediation efforts, particularly in its periphery and in the Middle East and in Africa. Are affecting its standing on the global stage,、um, and so just a little background on me. I, I I'm coming up on three years at Stimson. I've essentially been in the DC think tank circuit for all of my post、uh, university career,、um, and 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 primarily focusing on on Chinese foreign policy in the in the region and and its implications for U.S. policy as well.、Um, But just to give a little background of the the China's conflict mediation project,、mm-hmm. we're really looking at how China, as a great power, is going to be and is already、um, engaging with different interstate conflicts around the world. This includes, as as Jordan mentioned,、uh, 
um, Afghanistan, but we also do work on Afghanistan, um, on Myanmar, pardon, as well as North Korea and um, the Israel-Palestine issue. So mm-hmm. it's absolutely a topic that's up and coming, and and hopefully the um, our research is is helping to contribute to a broader understanding of of how China's um, engaging with these civil civil conflicts. Yeah, no, really good work, man. Thank you for for that, and 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 Simpson for you know putting a lot of resources and effort behind this. I would say let's start off by setting the picture and you know giving some historical context for our audience on the Afghanistan you know uh, issue. We all saw those chaotic scenes in August and September that highlighted how the speed of the Taliban's takeover of of Afghanistan had been a surprise to almost everyone, governments and experts alike. And you know as we came up on that August 31st deadline for U.S. troops and NATO troops to leave the the, the nation. And as it passed, we saw thousands of Afghan and foreign nationals desperately trying to board evacuation flights, even with the deadly terrorist bomb attacks that were happening. So I think it's best we first step back in time a bit, probably 20, 25 years. I know this we can do our own podcast and just the history alone. But just for the sake of framing, um, you know, looking back at 20 years and, and possibly before 2001, where under the Taliban dominated regime, Afghanistan became a very important um, or prominent center for global extremism and, and global terrorism. Right. We had uh, the case of China not even opposing the U.S. led invasion in 2001. Can you describe what initial, you know, what that initial Chinese political and economic involvement in Afghanistan looked like during the war and then and and that post-Taliban regime? Yeah, that's a that's a great question to kind of set ourselves in and give context to. I think um, in the post 9-11 era, immediately after the attacks, there was a global consensus on the need to. Um, tackle extremism, and and one of those issues um, was the 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 Taliban's harboring of Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden um, in Afghanistan. So, um, in terms of China's approach to that, um, China had dealt with its own um, extremist issues both internally and externally, um, and this this initial step um, led by the U.S. and NATO. Was, was very much um, approved, if not um, neutrally felt towards by, by China. During the war, though, um, China maintained political and economic interests in the country just because of its prox- proximity to, to the Chinese border, mm-hmm. um, as well as, as its own internal domestic politics, particularly in, in its, um, the Uyghur autonomous region of Xinjiang, um, which you might be familiar about. Mm-hmm. Um, so these came with their own connotations in the Chinese context, which I'm happy to go into. But um, as the war progressed, I think increasingly on all sides, including on the U.S. side, on the Chinese side, um, as well as NATO allies, there was a, a recognition of the initial goals of the, the invasion of Afghanistan being overextended um, over time into nation building mm-hmm. and um, right. essentially being um too, too, uh, too grand to actually achieve. So I think as the years went on, especially in the past five years, China um, took its own initiatives to try to hedge its bets on, on what the future of Afghanistan mm-hmm. would look like. 
Yeah, to your point about hedging the bets and, and to step back just one quick, you know, one more time, the Taliban did not completely disappear off the face of the earth over the past 20 years. You know, we know they've been, even with the, 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 the at the peak of the American presence and, and even to the, to the to, I forgot which year that, you know, the, the Afghan, Afghanistan had its first president and, 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 you know, really started to relatively stabilize. What was China's engagement with the Taliban at that time, right? That we, we kind of see today, they're sort of, you know, having official talks with them. They're sort of, you know, giving them apparent legitimacy and, and, and having constructive, co- you know, conversations with them. Was China always sort of trying to play both sides, trying to walk a thin line? Or was it, it was like an about face where they were firmly in support of the war and crushing the Taliban and then suddenly just out of the sake of pragmatism or practicality, they suddenly switched sides? Like what, what, if you can give some color to that? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a fantastic question. I think it kind of goes forgotten in the, particularly in the past five years and especially in the past month after the withdrawal um, and the takeover by the Taliban. I think it's kind of forgotten the way in which the Chinese had a very negative, if not um, critical, look at the Taliban um, when they were in power from 1996 to 2001 and immediately after the invasion by the, 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 the U.S. and NATO. Um, the Taliban traditionally had extremely fundamentalist um, ideologies. It harbored al-Qaeda, um, which is a, unlike the Taliban itself, is and, and was at that time designated a terrorist organization mm-hmm. by international standards, as well as um, the U.S. and its allies. Um, but over time, I think, as everyone was coming to terms with the, the intractability of the conflict in Afghanistan, um, there became a point when the Chinese recognized that this is a, a political and military force that's, that's here to stay, mm-hmm. and that the U.S. Um, offensives um, were not doing what they were um, self-purportedly aimed to be doing. So um, we first saw in 2015 secret meetings held between um, the Chinese and and Mm -hmm. the Taliban, and then progressively it became more public to a point where now, um, although the Chinese have not, as of today, recognized the Taliban, the Chinese are are one of the closest to um, to kind of give that little piece of... of, um, legitimacy to the Taliban of any country. Right. So because I remember it was sort of in the, the those weeks of, in the summer where we, you know, we started seeing the deadline coming up and so many moving parts were, there were so many moving parts in the whole Afghanistan um, regional scenario um, or arena where the Taliban sent political representatives to China. I think they met in Tianjin um, hmm. My question is that the Taliban, they weren't necessarily caught off guard by that acceptance of an or invitation to a meeting. It, it was sort of talks were already, there was already a sort of relationship there, right? Where it seemed almost natural for China to invite them to China just to speak in an official matter. Yeah, absolutely. That that hadn't actually been the first time that the Taliban had been to Beijing or Tianjin. Um, yeah. Or maybe first time in Tianjin, but not, not in right, North right. China. And um, it, I think it does speak to the, the willingness of the Chinese to talk to all parties within the conflict. And this has been a um, kind mm-hmm. of a, a through like thread or a pattern within Chinese mediation is that um, 
it's strategic security and economic interests come first um, when it comes mm-hmm. to any type of conflict. And in order to, to secure those and protect those, a large part of that is talking to all sides and um, choosing not to alienate any side in, in um, lest they lose out on their interests. Right. And I think um, we've seen in cases previously that, uh, for example, the Taliban had offered the Chinese um, protection of certain infrastructure projects in Afghanistan, um, mm. which ended up actually not being uh, effective enough in, prevent, in, in coercing the Chinese to actually um, feel secure mm. that their projects and investments are secure. Um, but nonetheless, there had been those talks between the Chinese and the, and the Taliban in ways that there wasn't, at least publicly, between the U.S. and the Taliban up until the the Trump-Taliban um, uh, deal right. in February of 2020. Right. So on that note of, you know, China essentially not closing the door to any side, right? And you, and you talk about it as being a threat in, in, in just their, their engagement or their foreign policy engagements across the board. In the context of the conflict mediation project, I wanted to first unpack the project first and then go into, uh, you know, China's priorities in the region and, and, and China's, I guess, desires, policy desires and political desires in the region. So the piece that you wrote, right, the research that you put together, just outlining a comprehensive timeline of all the various stakeholders in 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 this in, in the region Pakistan China Afghanistan etc when did that start and why did that come about I know it I don't think it came about in the last month or two <laughs> so I'm wondering like did you were you working on this piece as things started heating up or what was the upcoming withdrawal like a, a sort of like a, 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 a reason like a major reason for you to start this project like how did they come about yeah definitely I mean this might um, give too much, this might open the door a little too openly about how research at a think tank is actually done, but it was, it was kind of a sporadic um, last ditch effort to just publish it because it had been, it had been a piece and a, a project that we've been working on for almost two years now. Um, mm-hmm. But with the, the rapid decline of the situation in Afghanistan, it, this, this draft had to go out. Right. Um, but we had been continually updating essentially the, um, what we kind of call it, a tracker of China's mediation activities with various parties to the conflict. Um, and you can go back to, um, in the case of Afghanistan, you can see on the, on the resource, which is called China's Conflict Mediation in Afghanistan, goes back to all the way to 2018 with the Istanbul conferences and, and various multilateral engagements. Um, but this had been a project that we, we'd looked at for, um, about two years, and, and we've simultaneously been looking at, as I mentioned, um, Afghanistan, Myanmar, North Korea, and how China is is pursuing its interests in, in, in that region right. broadly. Right, right. So when it comes to Afghanistan, and, you know, we have various analysts, various experts sort of, you know, list out what's China's next move. What are their desires? What are their priorities? What do they want? What's ideal for China? And from my readings, there's sort of a consensus uh, belief that the ideal, the ideal situation Beijing wants on the ground in Afghanistan, 
can be summarized in one sentence, right? Where it's for China, low cost and commitments, while preventing the emergence of a dangerous security and institutional vacuum, right? So I, I kind of bullet it out in three ways, which is like, A, they want a negotiated peace settlement with the Afghan government. This is before, this is kind of, hot, you know, sort of a bird's eye view, not the live shot of after the Taliban took power, but sort of what China mm-hmm. sort of always wanted, right? A, a negotiated peace settlement among the Afghan government and the Taliban and, and uh, combatants and supported by all neighboring countries. Uh, B, a favorable economic environment where Chinese investment in Afghanistan um, can, you know, become part of the BRI or, you know, in the Afghan, Pakistan, Central Asian corridor of trade connecting China with Asia. And then C, an effective regional counterterrorism, counter-narcotic strategy. So that's the ideal. That's, you know, in in a perfect world. (laughs) And... I'm going to ask a pretty big question. It's sort of like a two-part question, which is, is, A, is that the reality? And B, you know, in your writing, you emphasize that China always wanted a peace process that was Afghan-led and Afghan-owned with minimal, if any, agenda setting by outside parties. So today, what is the reality of the situation? And does China still hold that philosophy as a priority? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, I, and I think the the um, the second question connects directly to the the A of your first question in terms of mm-hmm. the negotiated peace settlement and and the difference between what the reality was just two months ago and what the reality is now um, in China's approach to to mediating the conflict in in Afghanistan. It was essentially between two main parties. It was between the, the Taliban and the Kabul-based government, uh, the American-based or backed government there. Um, with the fall of, of Kabul and the fall of Afghanistan as a whole to the Taliban so quickly, um, that question is is pretty much out the door in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Ghani, President Ghani fled the country and resigned immediately. Yep. His, he doesn't even have a, a government in exile in any way. So the, the question of... Um, the Afghan-led and, and Afghan-owned peace process was a was a admirable principle to uphold, but now it, the, the term is is pretty much moot. Um, and I just to, as a tangential point, I think it's in, it's important to kind of look into why the Chinese were so consistent in framing their engagement with the with the Afghan conflict in terms of Afghan-led and Afghan-owned. Um, this is something else that we see within Chinese mediation broadly is that there's a strong emphasis on um, non-interference. And this goes along with the Chinese principle of non-interference, um, which doesn't have roots necessarily in relation to um, neoliberal interventionism. But and it goes back even to the 1955 Bandung conference with the non-allied movement. But it's extremely applicable in terms of um, it's in China's interest to promote um, within the international system, norms that protect countries' sovereignty. Hmm. And in pushing such norms and, and attempting to create a block of like-minded countries, China is in some ways protecting its own interests from um, its own sovereignty and its own interests from being intervened by um, other actors uh, right. internationally. For example, if there was R2P, 
apply to Xinjiang or Hong Kong, mm-hmm. um, China would try to uphold uh, its own normative stance on those issues as opposed to the, the Western stance. So I think that that's an important thing to think to keep in mind when we're thinking about how China will approach future conflicts is that there is an emphasis on um, um, non-interference, whether that's true or not. But that that's kind of why the the Afghan-led, Afghan-owned uh, narrative was so pervasive on pretty much in pretty much every official statement that the uh, the foreign ministry put out. Um, right. And to go to your to address your question about whether the, the reality of China's interests are, are, are there, I think it's it's very much on point of um, when applicable, they did want to negotiate a peace settlement. Um, but also an important factor is um, a favorable economic environment, um, as well as effective counterterrorism and, and narco- narcotics. Um, I think within the Chinese mindset, the, the latter comes first in many ways. Um, security has to come before the economics, yeah. and that that can be seen in the essential f- failure of the two big projects that China had in Afghanistan over the past twenty years. Um, yes, there were hiccups of archaeological, historical issues, but the largest issues were that there were ongoing um, militant uh, activities happening around these projects, and the Chinese did not feel secure. Um, so I think in the Chinese mindset, the foundation of investment and, and attaching Afghanistan to the to CPAC or BRI, um, uh, the foundation is is a, a stable and secure environment in the long term. Um, it can't just be one year of stability; it has to be within the the span of a project. Yeah, no, I I appreciate your point on you know China prioritizing sovereignty of nations. Um, We've seen in a lot of media reaction, a lot of reaction from various pundits, from even, you know, uh, political leaders here in the U.S., where that initial embrace of the Taliban was and and, and the current, you know, uh, language being used when talking about the Taliban in, in very official ways of, you know, sort of recognizing the Taliban as sort of like a, 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 a valid, you know, valid leadership in Afghanistan. In the West, you saw it being interpreted as, oh, China's just getting in bed with whoever they can to get and reap whatever economic and, and, and financial and regional benefits um, they can, they can, they can have, but you're sort of making the point that that's not necessarily wrong, but also China does hold in high regard the sovereignty of nations and the policy of non-interference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think if we even take a farther uh, step back and look at the Western ideology of, of foreign policy versus the emerging Chinese foreign policy ideology, um, it really is a question of um, of values, and um, the Americans would say the Chinese don't have values in, in, in their foreign policy, and in many ways that's true. It's just not values of human rights, as the Biden administration has stressed. It's not values of, of women's rights in the case of Afghanistan, but instead it's a value of sovereignty in the Chinese mindset and, and broader geopolitical um, normative uh, strategy. And that's how it, it, it postures itself in pretty much a dichotomy to how 
um, that Americans and, and the West put um, values on, on on human rights issues and the like. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, you know, well, one of the first things many analysts in the U.S. and Europe experts predicted as, you know, in the midst of the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and as it unraveled was the power vacuum and, and China stepping in and taking the lead and, and, and being, you know, the U.S.'s replacement. And it's no secret that Afghanistan sits on hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars worth of untapped mineral resources, right? It's no secret that Afghanistan is in dire need of infrastructure environment. So there is no secret <laughs> that, or, or I should say it's not surprising that there's this narrative being pushed um, that Afghanistan is sort of a prime candidate to be you know, added to China's expansive Belt and Road and, and for China to swoop in and, and, and debt trap them and you know, all, all the, the, the usual tropes that you hear in the Chinese foreign policy space. I'm, I'm interested to hear like what, because if you if I've heard them, you've definitely heard them and read them. What's been your reaction to that? Yeah, I think the, the narrative of, of China moving in is, is, it has validity in that China has strong interests in protecting not only security, but economic interests in Afghanistan as a, as a neighboring country. Mm-hmm. But what I think we can see from the, the Chinese reaction to not only the fall of, of Afghanistan um, after the Soviets left and, and now the Americans, there is a, a strong um, recognition within the Chinese netizens as well as the government of this idea of Afghanistan being the graveyard of empires and not wanting to right. itself fall into the trap that, that the USSR or the U.S. have. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that that's part of the calculation of China in, in its thinking of not only how it will protect its security interests on that neighboring country, but also how how quickly or how enthusiastically it's going to um, commit investment into a country that whose whose future is not so certain in many ways. So you mentioned the Chinese have um, been incurring favors with the Taliban, and that's entirely true. I think the for the time being, though, um, within the scale of a couple of years, the Chinese will will continue to to wait and see about the, the future of of the country broadly, and 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 whether or not these issues resolve themselves, or they need a little um, push from the outside world. But um, I think there it also goes to say that in the in the past two years, and especially since the the nineteenth Party Congress, um, there there has been a shift in Chinese. Um, at least outward rhetoric about BRI, um, mm-hmm. as well as its commitments. Um, yeah. In yeah. part because of the pushback of this debt trap narrative, um, which has its uh, own merits in many ways. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that there's there's going to be a rethinking not only after the, the Afghanistan debacle and, and what it means for China, but also generally what China's foreign policy is going to look like um, in terms of exporting of, of economic uh, overcapacity and, and other, um, other, other issues. Right. So although we see China has approved of the Taliban, or just say approved, that's a bit too, I guess, subjective, has acknowledged them in a formal way, they, I think you can agree, or you would agree that they may not necessarily, or that may not necessarily mean it's ready to commit to doing business 
with Afghanistan and with the Taliban right now. It's sort of a bit more wait and see. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would call it a wait and see approach. And I think we, we can see what that happening in just in the statements of, of Xi Jinping and other officials in the past couple of days. Yeah. Um, I think a couple of days ago, she spoke before the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, um, and uh, which was heavily talking about Afghanistan with Afghanistan, one of the members. And he essentially urged the neighboring countries of Afghanistan and other members of the SCO to... Um, I think his words were drive a smooth transition in Afghanistan. Um, so in the Chinese mindset, and I think in a realistic mindset, the, the issue is still very unresolved. It's only been over a month since Kabul fell. Um, and in terms of recognizing or um, legitimizing the rule of the Taliban, yes, China would be one of the first to do so. But I think thinking strategically, um, the Chinese will want to um, not only have the word of the Taliban that they wouldn't have connections to the to mm -hmm. terrorist organizations such as ETIM, um, mm -hmm. but they, they will want to see some evidence of, of seriousness in their commitment to do so. Um, they're not, I wouldn't see them as willing or, or quick to give up such a, such a great point of leverage within the international community, such as recognition so quickly or so easily. Yeah. Now you mentioned ETIM, like in your response, I would, you know, ask of you to, I guess, explain what the organization um, is um, to listeners who might not be familiar with them. They're, you know, they're a t an organization listed as a terrorist group. And that's also been another big conversation topic in all of this, right? Because they are, uh, there is a population of Uyghurs in Afghanistan who have vocally said that they are concerned about, um, China's becoming or China's growing relationship with the Taliban and what does that mean for them in in Afghanistan? So my do you think that China's engagement with Afghanistan or you know, their intention behind the engagement with Afghanistan is also driven by that, by its by security fears? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the points that China made um, extremely strongly in, in the days uh, of last month as, as the security situation deteriorated, but also China, um, what China made extremely clear in um, repeated public statements for years now um, put out by the foreign ministry is that um, no matter what the, the end result of after a U.S. withdrawal is, um, there can't be room for ETIM, which is the East Tur Turkestan Islamic Movement, um, which has, which used to have extremely strong roots in, in, in Xinjiang, according to the Chinese government, and which mm -hmm. um, essentially prompted their their um, massive lockdown against Muslim minorities in, in the autonomous region, which has been condemned and um, worldwide and, and designated by the by the UN as a genocide. So, um, I think. The, the 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 force by which China cracked down in Xinjiang and employed te new technologies to track Muslims, um, completely banned freedom of speech, freedom of movement of these individuals. I think it speaks to the um, to the extremely high priority that Beijing places on on what it sees as internal terrorism. 
And this stemmed from the 1990s into the early knots, um, into the mid knots of, of terrorist attacks that um, happened by a, a very small minority of, of Muslims in, in Xinjiang and, and um, what prompted essentially um, Chen, Chen Chengguo to, to crack down since 2017 in, in a way that has prevented terrorist um, attacks ever since. But um, at what cost becomes the question. But turning turning to Afghanistan, I think, um, as, I, as I mentioned before, China's paramount interest is securing its uh, security interest. And the, mm-hmm. the means to do that is by um, working with the new de facto government and and right. them in the ways that they can and, and working with them on the ways they can to prevent um, various issues such as narcotics trade and um, mm-hmm. terrorist attacks from occurring either within the region or within China itself. Yeah, no, so we've seen, or I'd say we've, we've, we've come to agree that there is a, probably a likelihood that there's going to be a wait-and-see sort of strategy on the economic front. But on the security front, in my opinion, it seems as though China is more willing to act or willing to go a bit further um, in terms of uh, uh, any strategic movements or any strategic actions within the region. So my question is, do you think at some point in the future it's possible that Beijing would want to shoulder that security burden at, you know, that the American presence had, has done before um, to keep that security threat at bay? And, and, and keeping in mind your point earlier about Chinese, uh, you know, political leaders being very aware of, you know, Afghanistan being the place where empires come to die. Like, how, how do you see that, 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 like, where do you see that balance being, being drawn? Yeah, that's, that's the million dollar question. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I think um, China itself is, is trying to square away where its, its interests um, conflict with its own desire to not get entangled in these issues itself, mm-hmm. just like the USSR and the US did. I think um, as on the economic side, the Chinese are also playing it um, on a wait and see um, basis. Mm-hmm. They're, priority would be to not have to do anything essentially and, and have the Taliban take right. over um, all right. counter-terrorist uh, engagements in, in the region. But from a realistic standpoint, um, it's difficult to see how the Taliban alone can prevent um, such attacks as we saw with the, the ISIS-K attack at the airport as the U.S. were trying to evacuate, as well as um, the, the issue of Pakistan and the, the Pakistani Taliban, the, the TTP, um, having uh, with various suicide attacks against Chinese nationals in Pakistan in the past couple of months. So um, I think th- this is obviously going to be a topic that the Chinese leadership is going to be looking at for the next um, weeks, months, if not years. Um, mm-hmm. And the question they're going to be asking themselves is to what degree they want to um, intervene just mm-hmm. from anecdotal and, and historical examples. I can't imagine the Chinese going in, in the same way that the, the, the U S right. did, <laughs> but the Chinese have their own ways of trying to, to secure their, their interests in the region, especially when it comes so close to their own, um, um, what they would call territorial uh, sovereignty and integrity of, of Xinjiang. Right. Right. 
I think when it comes to security matters in any region of the world, whether it's Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, Latin America, or West Africa, you know, it's not just between two countries, right? It's not one country. There, there are always various stakeholders involved. And our conversation today has been almost entirely on China and Afghanistan, which was, you know, which is the point of this podcast. But what, you know, what role might other countries play? Like, does, is, do you see the U.S. re-entering the arena? You know, do you, is, is Pakistan an important, you know, um, uh, player in all of this? And, and, and can, can these external stakeholders influence uh, China's decision to not wait and see or to continue to wait and see or, or, or help reinforce China's strategy in Afghanistan? Like how, how do particular stakeholders outside of China and Afghanistan play a role in, in just the, the regional stability? Absolutely. I mean, to answer the question about what the, the U.S. is going to do, I think what the Biden administration has made clear when it was it was withdrawing from Afghanistan and, and what has been a bipartisan consensus for years now, honestly, is that the U.S.'s strategic priorities are, are now outside Afghanistan. Um, and more broadly, just outside the Middle East. And, and we saw this with the, with the recent um, justification and announcement of the, the AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US agreement, um, and essentially just fulfilling the, the pivot that the Obama administration, with, with Secretary Clinton especially, what they had tried to do back in 2011, which Trump also tried to do, and now which Biden is trying to execute um, yeah. for better or for worse. I think in terms of um, Afghanistan, there it, the narrative is that there's a passing off of responsibility um, and the Chinese mm-hmm. have actually been very critical of, of the U.S. in this regard of you're, you're, you ruined Afghanistan and, and um, you're leaving it for regional players to, to pick right. up. It just becomes a question of how regional actors are going to to step up to the plate, if anything, to ensure the the, the security of, of the region and their own interests. But I do think it's inter- it's important to remember that um, Afghanistan of 20 years ago is is different than it is today, and the Taliban of 20 years ago might very well be different um, mm-hmm. from from back then. So it, it it'll be a wait and see approach for for many of us as we try to deal with the different. Um, the the global issues that every country is dealing with, especially within U.S.-China competition. Right, right. I'm curious how China's actions and strategy and, and, and engagement with the Taliban in Afghanistan and their stance on clamping down on, you know, radical extremism and, and, and ter- terrorist activities, how does that affect Chinese interests abroad, right? Or in other parts of the world specifically. I mean, we look at the continent of Africa, you know, it's no secret that terrorism has been rising sharply over the past decade. Um, And it's also no secret that, you know, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa as well, has become a major economic priority for China. Um, you know, we can see that by the sheer numbers and the hundreds of billions of dollars of just investments and, and, and bilateral trade. And although, you know, Kabul may be thousands of miles away from Africa, do you think that there is an impact on 
Islamic extremism in Africa and particularly on on how that affects Chinese economic interests and, and, and Chinese actors in Africa? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I wouldn't think that the, the Chinese would disagree with um, essentially Biden's proclamation on the days that he was withdrawing from Afghanistan, mm-hmm. his proclamation that um, terrorist threats have, I think in his words, he said, metastasized to other areas of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned Al-Shabaab in Somalia, Al-Qaeda in the, on the Arabian Peninsula, um, as right. well as in, in ISIS in Syria, and, and, and including in Africa and Asia. So um, I don't think the Chinese, from their strategic perspective, disagree with that concern. Um, I think it's more a question of how impactful um, uh, those terrorist threats are on Chinese sovereignty, first and foremost, and then on economic development and projects. And I do think the Chinese, particularly when it comes to um, Africa and um, Asian countries such as the Philippines and, and other places where ISIS is, um, there there is a question of what this means for the future of the safety of Chinese overseas workers mm-hmm. um, and the investment environments of Chinese right. um, ERI projects. And that gets back to the question of whether or not the this Afghan example and, and the metastasis like the the growth of of terrorist threats across the world, whether that changes how China thinks about its own place in the world and its own macroeconomic future. Um, But I think that that's going to be an extremely important part to think about, especially within the African context where China is, is not only diplomatically, but economically and and, um, potentially security wise um, gaining more influence. Right. Right. And you know we went abroad to, to 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 various parts of the world, but I wanted to head back to China domestically to talk about how is all of this being received by the everyday Chinese. Um, you know, is there um, are there misconceptions? Is, is is are Chinese people welcoming to the government's engagement with the Taliban? Is it you know what what's that like in, in inside China? Yeah. So from based on what I've the limited amount that I've seen on on the Chinese Internet, um, I think the general consensus um, on China's role in Afghanistan in the future is that it really harps on this understanding within both the leadership and and the populace that um, China is in their mindset destined to not be like the U.S. or the USSR. It is not destined to fall into the Right. Um, graveyard of empires, and and it has its own path to becoming great again or national rejuvenation. Mm-hmm. So there are these, I think, these nationalistic tendencies on um, Chinese social media all the time, but in particular in relation to the to the Afghan um, situation. I saw a lot of photos of um, um, pretty much word for word, but just in Chinese of um, the same criticisms of the Biden administration's withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the comparisons to, to Saigon um, back Got after it. the Vietnam War, I saw those in Chinese. And um, I think that that's, that can speak to, I think, some of the discontent within the, um, within the West of how this was approached. Mm-hmm. But right. um, speaking more broadly, I think um, the Chinese have a, have a, a different strategic mindset of, of where they want to take Afghanistan, if right. anywhere. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking that, you know, with 
the rise of nationalism and, and with the Chinese government making it such a domestic security priority um, to fight against radical, you know, Islam, Islam or, or, you know, and counterterrorism. I was just always curious as to how that, I guess, manifested itself in, in the eyes of the everyday, everyday Chinese. Yeah, I think within the current Chinese political environment, it's, 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 especially with COVID closing the borders, it's difficult to get this information mm-hmm. off outside besides on the internet. And right, right. Um, as we've seen, I think the techno authoritarianism of, of the Chinese um, security state has, uh, has made it somewhat difficult to understand what Chinese are really thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that's something that we need to all do more research on because um, that have, has implications not only for how, um, um, how the Beijing's leadership will act, but how they think about their own um, political legitimacy and, and regime security. Yeah. No, I think that brings us to the end of our conversation today. It was actually great. Thank you so much for your time uh, on this, uh, Jason. You, um, you know, I think we had a pretty nuanced and, 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 and comprehensive and, and, and just thoughtful chat about what's happening in Afghanistan today. So thank you so much for your time. No, thank you for having me. It's been a great discussion and uh, look forward to following up, following up on the podcast even more. Great. Take care.